Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, October the 26th, 2022. Welcome back to Keynote. Two original things about today's show. Firstly, my guest, Cody Keenan has stolen my name, Keenan. I don't quite know how he's done that. I may have to get my lawyers on him, or maybe I've stolen his anyway. It's the first time we've ever had anyone on the show uh, called Keenan on Keenan, so it goes very well. And the other thing, much more significantly about Cody Keenan, is that his new book, which is called Grace, um, comes with a recommendation, a blurb from the former president of the United States, Barack Obama. It's the first time I think we've had anyone on the show who has a blurb from the ex-president of the United States. And what uh, President Barack Obama said about Cody's new book via Twitter is at a time when the meaning of America is up for grabs, Cody Keenan's new book chronicles 10 days that tested us and ultimately showed us at our best. We'll come back to Obama, but uh, Cody, thank you so much for sparing the time. You're in a, a Hampton Inn in Boston, a very romantic uh, place to talk to me from. Uh, this idea, let's begin with Obama. Uh, this idea, or at least Obama's words from um, about the new book, um, at a time when the meaning of America is up for grabs. What do you think he, he meant by that, Obama? My guess is, and first of all, thank you for having me on, and, and, and thank you for showing what President Obama said about the book. That was nice of him. Uh, I borrowed the thesis of this book from the thesis of the speech um, he gave in Selma back in 2015, which is that politics is uh, not a clash of armies, but a clash of ideas. It's a contest to determine the true meaning of America. And we've been engaged in that struggle ever since our founding. It seems like we're engaged in it on an almost hourly basis these days. And you know, the true meaning of America is, is whatever we want it to be. Uh, there's, there's kind of one side of the battle of ideas that wants it to be exclusionary, and there's one side that wants it to be expansive. Um, that's the side I believe in. That's the side this book uh, preaches. You begin the book with reference to the great John Lewis, who, who died uh, recently, and of course his the famous Selma to Montgomery march, which he was one of the organizers of of, uh, particularly on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, when there was a great deal of violence. Um, the speech, of course, was literal, but it's also metaphorical. For you and Obama, do you present American history as a kind of march? Absolutely. <clears throat> it's a march. It's a continuum. It's a never-ending journey. You know, the, the very words of our founding documents explicitly say that we're imperfect. They challenge us to form a more perfect union. And President Obama always believed, and then the whole arc of his, the rhetorical arc of his presidency argued for the fact that it's it's the task of each generation to bridge the lofty ideals of our founding with the realities of our time uh, until we are actually a true democracy where, where everyone's vote counts, where everybody's treated equal. And uh, that's really the thrust of this book. I mean, all these events in the book spoke to that, spoke to what kind of country do we want to be and do we actually believe that everybody is created equal? 
So in that sense, and, and you, you touch on this both in your, your book and obviously in your speeches, um, the idea of American exceptionalism. Do you think America uh, is different from other countries in that sense? There aren't arcs, there aren't uh, bridges, perhaps, in the narrative of other countries. Yeah, and there, there, there are two kind of different definitions of American exceptionalism in American politics. You've got the definition on the right that, you know, more or less claims that America was born perfect, uh, created by God as different and special and unique on this earth. And our argument, <clears throat> Obama's and mine, is that America is unique because America can change. That's not to say other countries can't, but we're not... Unlike a lot of other older countries, we are not bound by any one particular bloodline or creed or religious affiliation. Um, you know, we, th we threw off uh, aristocracy and we're just kind of this beautiful mess that's trying to make it work. And, and, and in a lot of ways right now, you know, democracy is up for grabs in a way it hasn't been in a long time. Um, and we're, we're, we're always in this struggle to see whether or not we can make this work. And you know, what, what, what he believes is what makes America exceptional and unique is that we can kind of cast off, you know, the old ways of doing things anytime we want. We can, we can make sure, just like in, in Selma and the civil rights movement, that we could be a full democracy by allowing black people the full and fair right to vote, you know, and, and then more updated for our time, we can make sure that gay people can get married to who they want to get married to, um, so we're kind of always on this this never-ending march to make America more perfect. You're a word man, Cody, a very distinguished speechwriter and writer. So words matter to you. And as a writer myself, and I've written some books, I know that choosing the quote that begins a book um, is really important. You choose one from James Baldwin at the beginning of the book. I'm going to quote Baldwin. Here we are at the center of the ark, trapped in the gaudiest, most valuable and most improbable water wheel the world has ever seen. Everything now, we must assume, is in our hands. We have no right to assume otherwise. Why did you choose these words from the great James Baldwin? When I, I was looking around for a great epigraph and when I found that one, it was almost like he'd written my book in 50 words. You know, he's written every Cody. Uh, you're not alone. He's written everyone's book in 50 words. It was remarkable. Yeah, yeah amazing. And, and President Obama, uh, you know, once gave me a piece of advice. He said, "Listen," or he said, "Read James Baldwin when you're stuck, and uh, listen to John Coltrane when you're not." So Baldwin is one of the first people I look to for this. But that last part really spoke to me. I mean, everything is in our hands. You know, it, again, democracy is just up for grabs, like no other time in my lifetime, and everything we do matters. Uh, whether it's voting or marching or speaking out against uh, anti-Semitism, injustice, bigotry, hatred, um, everything's in our hands. And we have no right to assume otherwise. We have no right to assume that somebody else's vote uh, will make up for ours if we don't go. And everything, of course, was in our hands or your hands, Americans, in June 2015, uh, the, the, the 10 days that you think in some ways defined uh, the Obama presidency and uh, uh, defined what, borrowing from the subtitle of your book, the battle for America. Why were these days in June, Cody, so important for you? Why did you build the narrative of your book? Because you worked for Obama for several years. Why did you build them around these days in June 2015? I worked for him for 14 years. Um, and I, I didn't want to write a memoir when I came out of the White House. You know, one of the 
uh, one of the things I was most grateful, one of my friends said, it's, I think it's the first Washington memoir I've ever seen that features the back of the author's head. And that's the way I always kind of viewed our speech writing um, collaboration. But to answer your question, the, the sheer magnitude of the events that happened in those 10 days, uh, somebody once wrote, it was just too implausible for a full season of the West Wing. You know, they were bookended by the white supremacist massacre in Charleston. Uh, and 10 days later, Obama's eulogy in Charleston, where he sang Amazing Grace. Uh, and that was a real, that was a real dramatic thread through the book. For a long time, he didn't want to give a eulogy at all, and I didn't want to write it. And it wasn't until the sixth day of the week where he decided to do it. Meanwhile, you've got the families of the victims, uh, two days after the shooting, forgive the killer in court at his arraignment, which was this extraordinary act of grace that I think sort of changed the way everybody walked that week. You started to see... Um, America's biggest retailers refused to sell products with the Confederate flag on them. You even saw some Republican governors in the South quietly order the flag brought down over public spaces. And all the while, we were waiting for these Supreme Court decisions on marriage equality and Obamacare, and we honestly didn't know which way they'd go. So we had to prepare for every outcome. There was a real chance that the Supreme Court would tell uh, millions of Americans who are working two jobs, sorry, you, you, don't, you don't get any help from your government to buy health insurance. There was a real chance they'd tell um, gay Americans, sorry, you're second-class citizens. You don't get to get married like the rest of us. And so all of these events kind of went straight at who we are and, and what we believe in. Um, and I just, I couldn't think of any other way to write this book than just by confining it to those 10 days. And, and it really speaks to, it, it, I explicitly don't give Barack Obama credit for uh, the progressive victories that week. Like, yes, Obamacare was something that he pushed through, but that was the result of a 100-year movement for uh, universal health care. And we're still not there yet. You know, we, we closed the gap more than almost anybody else, but we have to keep going. We have to protect what we got and keep going. And marriage equality was, was the result of a 50-, 60-year movement for LGBTQ rights. And we're not fully there yet. We have to keep going. And out of the book, you saw uh, there have been a couple really important uh, gun safety movements that, that arose out of the Obama years. So just those 10 days really kind of highlight what you mentioned that we are on this never ending March. We are on this water wheel. Uh, Baldwin's arc. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's MLK's arc as well. I'm curious for you as a speechwriter, when I began the book, uh, you begin in uh, Selma with the, the Obama speech on March 7th, 2015. What's the bridge, so to speak, as for you as a speechwriter between the Selma speech and the Charleston speech? It's it's that it's that thesis that Obama gave the the Selma speech that it's uh, that, that politics is not a clash of armies but a clash of wills a contest to determine the true meaning of America and that just those ten days it just felt like it I mean, it felt like it was real in real time you know it, it's not like when we were when we were living through those ten days I wasn't thinking wow this is going to be a great book you're not thinking okay today's day seven today's day eight you're just trying to get through and write all these speeches and you're, you're, we have emotions in the white house too. We were grappling with all of this in real time. Um, so the bridge is really one of the, one of the challenges of speech writing is that you are when the president, you're the president of the United States, you're narrating uh, current events for Americans, but you're also trying to make sense of them. You're also trying to give some sort of direction, especially with a eulogy. You're trying to remind people, what are our obligations now that this person is gone? And so for the Charleston eulogy, you know, it was more than just eulogizing Reverend Pinckney. The president wanted to talk about guns and the Confederate flag and racism. And that's tough to do in, in one speech. And he was the one who 
built this beautiful structure around the lyrics to Amazing Grace. Yeah, he, he, he begins to sing. But for you as a speechwriter, in terms of the craft, which speech are you most proud of? In an odd kind of way, he stole your thunder in Charleston by singing at the end, which wasn't your idea. You didn't, as you say in the book, you didn't even expect it. I think you learned about it on the, um, uh, on the flight home uh, on, on Twitter. So he, he kind of veered off script. It was rather naughty of him, wasn't it? Oh, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. He, uh, yeah, he, he told us that morning on the helicopter. So only five of us knew he was going to sing. And I just, I was so tired and overwhelmed after that week that I forgot to tell everybody else. I probably should have. Um, but then everybody else got to be surprised. So, and it was just kind of this wonderful moment that it, that it had never occurred to me to sing. And he could, he could do that because he was, he was steeped in the AME church in ways that I wasn't. Uh, and that day he was, he was really, you know, I read about this in the book. He was, he was basically a black pastor and president rolled into one at this black church service on national television, which is something that you don't get to see very often as a, as a quintessentially American experience. And I, I, when he said he was going to sing, I knew he would, but once you see the service in action, you know, he will, um, you know, the organist. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a great singer, but it's it still great. memorable. It was, uh, it was one of the, the great performances. Certainly uh, presidential singing performances. I don't know if it has any equivalent or any comparison, does it? I, not in the modern era. You know, I don't know what the presidents did back in the 1800s. Maybe some of them sang, but uh, not in a way that's captured worldwide instantaneously. The word grace is the heart of the book. The book is called, of course, Grace. The ideology, if that's the right word, of grace runs throughout the book. Um, it's the strand. It's the the thing that connects everything and you also chose to um to name your daughter grace and you talk about uh her and the birth in the book how do you understand the word grace you know it's it's i think the the literal definition is it's a the free and benevolent and unmerited favor of of god even when you don't deserve it and that's sort of what it felt like that week you know the, the real catalyst for the eulogy and for the entire book was what those families did when they forgave the killer in that extraordinary act of grace. That's not something that um, the killer deserved. It's not something that I would have ever considered doing. It is something that the AME church, um, it's a fundamental tenet of it. And so, so those, those families were literally practicing what they've been preached all these years. And it felt too, like as a country, you know, we have just over and over, decided as a people and it's, it comes from congress but to not do anything about gun violence um that's a little fatalistic because there are there are states that have passed laws cities that have passed laws there are really great organizations that work for it every day but we do keep sending people to congress who fail us on this and in a way it just didn't feel like we deserved what those families did um that's another reason why i didn't I didn't want to write a eulogy selfishly because I had just run out of words after all the eulogies we'd done after mass shootings. President Obama felt the same way. He actually said in the Oval Office that week, I have run out of words. Um, but it was that act of grace that we didn't deserve that convinced him to do it. But I'd, I'd always felt like when he, he keeps giving these eulogies after these mass shootings and as a country, we still don't do anything. And that always felt to me like an act of grace in a way that he would do this, even though we didn't deserve it. Um, and, and so to get to my daughter, you know, she was just, she was just a, a complication free pregnancy in a very tough year, 2020, that we just, we didn't feel like we deserved. And she lives up to her name every single day. 
Talking about running out of words, I know one of the pieces of advice that Obama gave you, uh, tough times, he said, pour a drink and listen to some Miles Davis uh, to find the silences. So in an odd way for speechwriters, perhaps the great challenge is finding the silences, which is particularly ironic, given that you are merchants, producers of words. Where do speechwriters find those silences, apart from listening to Miles Davis? <laughs> it, it, that, that specific advice came during the writing of the State of the Union Address, which is where good speech writing goes to die. You know, you just you have to pile in all these this laundry list of policies. And, and uh, I've forgotten to do the silences. I I was always, you know, I, I took over after one of the best speechwriters of all time, John Favreau, who who taught me everything I know about the craft, along with President Obama. And he and Obama were always very good at making the big argument. Uh, you know, a long policy speech, uh, uh, a passionate case for something. I was always better making the emotional argument um, rather than the, the big think logical one. You know, I'd, I'd go for your gut. And so I, I've never had a hard time finding the silences. I, I would find, um, I'll find inspiration from anywhere, you know, a great movie, um, a great commercial even, you know, it, it, you, you can never run out of inspiration. There are times when it can feel like you've run out of words, but that's also just not true. You know, and all, all it takes is, is one amazing act like what those families did. And it will, it will inspire you to write something beautiful. Maybe it's because you're from Chicago, a big Chicago sports fan. I know before you worked for Obama, you worked for Ted Kennedy. We're doing a show later this week with John Farrell, who just has a new uh, uh, biography of, of Kennedy out. What did Kennedy teach you in, in working for him that helped you in, 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 in your work with Obama? And, and how were these men similar and different? Yeah, they have, they have striking similarities, despite the fact that they, on paper, are probably as different as you could possibly get. Um, working for Ted Kennedy was my first job out of college. I, I took an unpaid internship in his mailroom where I was opening letters from people and, and routing them to where they needed to go. And it, it, it immediately changed the way I thought about politics. You know, I'd, I'd just come out of <clears throat> four years of getting a political science degree at a time when the West Wing was one of the most popular shows on television. But you see really quickly, you read these letters and, and from people desperately asking their senator for help, but, but also from all over the country, people just, just reaching out to touch the last Kennedy brother. And they were beautiful. Uh, and even when they're even full, it just struck me as this remarkable act of hope to write a letter and hope that somebody on the other side would care and do something about it. And Ted Kennedy was just constantly, the first question out of his mouth every time is, who's this going to help? How many people is this going to help? It's all he cared about. Um, and Barack Obama, when, when he became president, he told his correspondence office he wanted 10 letters a night um, from the American people just so he could kind of keep in touch as much as he could. And, and they were just much the same. Uh, and we worked a lot of them into our speeches. And, you know, the, the, the two men taught me everything I know about politics. And, and tonight I'm actually doing an event here in Boston at the Edward and Kennedy Institute for the United States Senate. So it's kind of fun to come full circle. Um, and when President Obama dedicated the Institute back in, I think, 2013, I, I took him over to the, they did a perfect replica of the senator's office. And he said, that's the couch I sat on when Ted Kennedy told me that these opportunities don't come along very often. You have to seize them. Um, but I'm glad you showed that Farrell book. That should I, I've been on the road now for three weeks, and that should be uh, home by the time I get home. That'll be the first yeah, book on my do, uh, We should get you on the show, actually, at the same time as, as Farrell. Um, many, many books, of course, have been written about Obama, including books he wrote about himself. 
what what do you think your book tells us about uh, Barack Obama that w- we didn't know before? One of the things that strikes me um, is that he enjoyed, in a way, making people feel uncomfortable in 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 the Oval Office, sitting too high or too low or on slightly uh, odd chairs. It perhaps put him in a in a stronger position. So there was a, a if you like, or there is a, a Machiavellian element to Barack Obama, which probably explains why he's been such a remarkable success. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the Oval Office is a great home court advantage on its own. One of the best in the world. He kept the heat. Yeah, you put, that, you put that in the book. I think you said it's the yeah. best. I, I'm not sure if those were your words, but they're great words. I'm sure I'm not the first person to say it, but yeah, he kept the, the, the couches were a little too plush and the, the temperature was always a little too high. So you're never fully comfortable in the Oval. You had to find ways to make yourself comfortable. I tried to get in there first uh, and steal two pillows and put it behind me so I could actually sit normally while everyone else either slouched or perched forward. Um, I try to remain standing, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd un- unbutton my tie just a little bit so I wouldn't be sweating. Um, you find ways to cope, but, but, you know, I, I think the book will show there's nothing salacious in my book. You know, there, I haven't, you'll notice I haven't been leaking any juicy gossipy tidbits because well, there isn't is... much. I mean, that's both the strength and perhaps in a, on an odd way, the weakness of Obama, that there wasn't anything. He, yeah, he conducted himself beyond reproach and he is, you know, when the cameras are off, the same as he is when the cameras are on. He curses a little bit more. He's a little bit more profane, uh, as we all are. But um, he's Which just isn't a really surprising, though. You'd expect that almost. It's not out of character, even when he's on camera. No, and, and you know what? He was even he was even beautiful with his words when he was being profane. Uh, he, he had a he had a very he had a real knack for profanity. But um, he's he's just a good boss. You know, I, I went to a wedding three weeks ago between two staffers who met working for him, and he was there in California just to come to the wedding and. You know, I, I describe in vivid detail the scene um, in the residence the night before the eulogy where I just hadn't gotten it to where it needed to be. Um, and he took it higher. But rather than he didn't make me feel bad about it. He didn't excise me from the equation and give the edits to somebody else. He sat me down and we walked through the speech together for a half hour. And he left. Uh, I left there feeling better about myself, even though he had had to do a ton of work on that speech himself. He's just a good boss and a good man. Um, and. Any weaknesses, uh, Cody? Anything that you'd like him to pull his socks up a bit on? <laughs> um, you can say, very... I don't suppose he'll watch, but might get back to him. But No, he's, he's very confident in his abilities as a writer. He would remind us all the time. He's very confident in his singing that ability. wasn't always justified. Yeah, it almost always uh, it almost always was. You know, uh, there were times when we were better than him, but they, but they weren't many. He was always our chief speechwriter. What is it about Obama that brings out people's best and worst qualities? Your book's been very well received, uh, but given how divided America is, there are a lot of people who hate the book. I, I read a piece in the Washington Free Beacon, rather nasty paper, which was particularly vindictive against you and, and Obama and what they call the elite establishment. Is there something about Obama that brings out not just the best, but the worst in people? Is it just because they're racists or is it more complicated than that? I'm sure it's more complicated than that. I mean, I think his very existence uh, drives some people mad, but um, I don't know. You know, Republicans will always make the the villains in politics or the always the elites in the media. And so they'll just they'll they'll, you know, kick that horse until it's six feet under. Um but he also brings out the best in people. And I think we haven't even seen the full legacy of that yet. You know, it's, it's not just that, 
you know, I teach speech writing now at Northwestern University, and my students were eight years old when the Obamas were inaugurated. So they and this whole generation have grown up seeing not just a Black first family, but a Black first family that conducted itself above reproach for eight years. And I think what's going to be really wild is when you see, you know, I think an important piece of a president's legacy is what young people go on to do with their lives uh, who came of age during that presidency. And I think you're about to see a whole lot of people run for office over the next few years who, quote unquote, aren't supposed to run for office. And I think it's going to make America a better place. The book is also about the supporting cast of characters who shaped the Obama presidency. Valerie Jarrett was the one, I think, who, who you suggest in the book insisted that he, he make the Charleston speech. Jen Psaki shows up. I also saw an interview with her. You also have very kind words for Josh Ernest, who you see as a very important figure in shaping uh, the Obama White House. One man who doesn't come up that much is, is Joe Biden. Um, was he around? Yeah, he was around. I just didn't work for him. Uh, he had his own team of speechwriters. But whenever I interacted with him, he was just as good and generous a guy as you could possibly meet. Um, he was there, I think it was the, the second day of the week when, when the president went out to give a statement um, the morning after the shooting. Joe Biden was right by his side. A lot of people see a critical, both in a, in a critical and in a, in, a, in a positive way, this Biden presidency as the third term of Obama. Do you, do you think that's right? Uh, in a sense, I think that would be taking something away from Joe Biden to call it that. But, but you know, the fact that Obamacare is still covering 30 million people is uh, great credit to the fact that Joe Biden is still president and he's been able to build on our work. He just signed the, you know, the most important climate bill in history, um, which is something we couldn't get through, an infrastructure bill we couldn't get through. He signed, he actually signed gun legislation that we couldn't get through. So um, it benefits us as, a, as Obama staff to have him be the third term, but I wouldn't call it that because that's not fair to him and his entire team. You end uh, on a on a rather dark note uh, with January sixth and the events there and the Trump presidency. Um, how pessimistic are you about the future of American democracy? You note that Obama himself has been quite pessimistic even before Trump came to office. I, I don't know if you I'd describe him as pessimistic. I mean, he had he had there was a realism to him, and there were but times concern, he was concerned. I mean, he's not just taking sure. it for granted. Yeah, no, real concern. And then, you know, he's cynical at times, too. Um, like he always said, you know, even before he was president and throughout the presidency, uh, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But it doesn't bend its way on its own. You know, the, the American story is a story of progress. But for every two steps forward, sometimes you take three steps back. And it feels like we're in one of those moments right now. You know, if, if America's a story of bursts of progress and backlash, uh, we're in a real moment of backlash. But these things don't last forever. Um, what's dangerous about this moment is that Republicans are actually working to lock in the levers of power to try to make it last forever. But again, I really am hopeful that, that we're getting a bunch of young people running for office who who are not kind of the stereotypical um, office holder and and I that who look more like America and who you know know how to use a computer and people, know what climate uh, science yeah, is. Uh, I mean, learning how to use a computer, Cody, doesn't necessarily no, no, no. you're going to be a good or a bad politician are, are you talking no. about people on the left of the democratic party or is it just a demographic group that you're in, uh, that you're positive about that you're the computer about? thing was the computer thing was more of a dig at the gerontocracy that we're saddled right with. um no I, I think it's party-wide you know it, it's not just the left and I, I think even on even republicans you're starting to see this too uh they can't last forever the way they are right now they're they're 
literally dying off and, and shrinking. And that's where a lot of this backlash comes from. Um, so I don't think we're mired in this moment forever, but that's not to minimize that. A lot of people are going to be really, really hurt over these next few years when Republicans take power. Are they going to take power? Are you suggesting they're going to win back power uh, in the election think, in a couple of weeks? I think it looks that way, you know, but I, I never really put much stock in polls. Polls are useful for people who make campaign decisions. Uh, for the rest of us, the only poll that matters is election day. You know, people are early voting right now and they got to keep doing it. I'll be doing it as soon as I get home to New York in a, in a few days. Um, it's up to us. It's always up to us, you know. Yeah, but, well, uh, it's, it, it's all it's, about agency, very... as, as, James, as James Baldwin reminded us at the beginning of your book. Um, if one was to just pick your book up and not know much about the Obama presidency, I think one might conclude that the, the two greatest achievements of the Obama presidency was Obamacare, and the uh, the same-sex marriage uh, legislation. Um, there's a great deal of controversy about his achievements. Uh, Michael Eric Dyson, for example, had an interesting piece about uh, Obama's contribution to uh, the African-American cause. What do you think the major legacy of the Obama administration, the, the two presidencies, the two administrations are? When historians in 50 years look back at Obama, what are they going to remember most of all? Uh, you know, David Plouffe still believes that Obama is going to be the climate president, um, which isn't to say that he solved it, but but he's the one that got the Paris Treaty to happen by getting China and India on board. And obviously, I think that's going to be... Do you believe the, that? The, the that doesn't sound be. very compelling to yeah. me. I mean, and even the Paris Accord hasn't had much impact one way or the other. No, but it will. You know, it's it's this is an ongoing thing. We there would not be a global climate treaty if we didn't get China and India to the table. And that's something that Obama worked on for years. Um, that's his probably most important policy legacy, I think. And it's one that's not going to bear out for a long time. And that's OK. You don't always get instant gratification. But I really do think his more important legacy is the one I've already talked about twice. And it's going to be people running for office who who otherwise might not have if the Obamas hadn't been around. Do you, think, do you think he's going to be remembered for his speeches? Are you going to be a footnote to history, uh, Cody, or are you going to deserve your own chapter or section at least? I'm fine being a footnote. That's what speechwriters are supposed to be about. You know, that's why the back of my head is on the cover. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think we do tend to remember presidents for their speeches. These are the things that last and endure. Um, no president's ever remembered for his tweets. So I, I don't know how many Trump speeches are going to be in the history books. Hopefully now. Now, who writes the speeches, by the way, for Trump? Are they any good? Does he even stick to script? You know, his funniest quirk is whenever he's reading a teleprompter, you can tell that this is the first time he's seen a speech, which means he, he never worked on them with his speechwriters because he would he will he will insert. He'll say, this is interesting. Many people didn't know this. And it's usually something everybody knows. You know, like he, I remember he was given some speech early in COVID where he was talking about flu shots. And he was like, nobody knows that you have to get a flu shot every year. Yes, we do. You just didn't know that. So he would just expose himself on a daily basis. Um, but I, I have no idea who writes for him. Let's end with those wonderful words from James Baldwin, which you begin your book with. When Baldwin uh, wrote that, um, or said it, I, I, I actually wrote it in November uh, 1962, he got a very interesting letter from the political philosopher Hannah Arendt. And, and, and she wrote, what f and she's a great admirer of, of Baldwin, of course, but she wrote, what frightened me in your essay was the gospel of love, which you begin to preach at the end. In politics, love is a stranger, and when it intrudes upon it, nothing is being achieved except hypocrisy.
Um, all the characteristics you stress in the Negro people, their beauty, their capacity for joy, their warmth and their humanity are well-known characteristics of all oppressed people. They grow out of suffering and they're the proudest possession of all pariahs. Unfortunately, they've never survived the hour of liberation by even five minutes. Hatred and love belong together and they are both destructive. You can only afford them in private and as a people, only so long as you are not free. I think what Arendt's getting to is the importation of religion into politics. Do you think she's onto something? Uh, that's the first time I've ever seen that. That's interesting. I, you know, we, Barack Obama was, believe it or not, probably the most publicly religious president we've had in terms of his speech making. Um, he talked about it deeply and often. Uh, and that was tough for me because I, I'm not really a, well, it wasn't tough. I'm just, not, I'm not really a believer. So I would have to stretch to, to kind of match him there. And that's where someone like Josh Ernest came in and helped a lot. Um, he always did it in ways that would illustrate and elucidate rather than use it to be divisive. You know, he would never use faith as a cudgel or as a policymaking tool um, in ways that, you know, maybe the Bush administration did. Well, he was always a teacher and you're a teacher in your new book, Grace. It's a wonderful book, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America, an ongoing, never-ending battle, probably with no final battle in, 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 in view. Uh, congratulations, Cody, on the book and on, on all the success associated with it. Any other books that you would recommend our viewers or listeners to read in addition to yours? Uh, as soon as I get home, I'm going to read that Farrell book on Ted Kennedy. Yeah. Um, lately, you know, I'll, I'll just lean into the embarrassment between, between two full-time jobs and a 23-month-old and writing my own book. I've only read two books this year. Um, which is shamefully low. I'll be able to get back to it when I get home. But it was, I read Pappy Land um, by Wright Thompson, which is this fascinating book that you pick it up, you think it might actually, it might be about bourbon whiskey. You know, that's the most famous bourbon in, in the world, but it's actually a, a story about the things we hand down between generations, um, inheritance and, and love and hard work. Uh, and I read it in like a day. I just loved it so much. And the other book I read uh, 20 years late was Devil in the White City. I'd never read it before. And I was doing a little bit of work um, with the Obamas for the Obama Presidential Center, which is built on the same site as the White City. And I realized, you know what, I've never actually read it. Uh, and I loved it. I thought it was fascinating. I was actually less interested in, um, you know, the mass murder angle than I was in just the, the total hubris of, of building this white city from nothing in a year. I thought it was fascinating. 